Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is keyboardist, conductor, and composer Bob Luna. First of all, the creator economy is making the average artist, the average musician, the average bands, making their lives a whole lot harder. The reason why there are 50 million creators and only about 2 million are making a living. Now, you might think 2 million, that sounds like a lot. And it probably is in the grand scheme of things. How many of the 2 million are making more than a living? In other words, better than subsistence wages? Well, we don't quite know that. But we do know a number of things. First of all, if we look at the professional individual creators, and that's those that are making content full-time, on YouTube, there are 31 million channels. Only about 1 million have 10,000 subscribers or more. On Instagram, there are 1 billion accounts, and about 500,000 have over 100,000 followers. And those are considered active influencers. On Twitch, there are 3 million streamers. About 300K have elevated themselves to partner or affiliate status. And then we have musicians, podcasters, writers, illustrators, and it's estimated there's about 200,000 of those. And again, these are making content full-time. If we look at the amateurs, though, that are doing this, a lot of them are doing really well. So of the 31 million channels on YouTube, about 12 million have between 100 and 10,000 subscribers. And Instagram, billion accounts, but about 30 million have between 50 and 100,000 followers. On Twitch, there are 3 million streamers, about 2.7 are non-partner or affiliates. And you might think, how does everybody earn money? Now, this is regardless whether you're on YouTube or Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, Patreon, OnlyFans, the way you make money is one of the following, and there's a lot of them here, advertising revenue, sponsored content, product placement, tipping, paid subscriptions, digital content sales, selling merchandise, shout-outs, live and virtual events, VIP meetups, and fan clubs. What all this means is that the creator economy has gotten us to the point where anybody can be a creator. And the bar to entry is so low that there's so much competition. So the people that want to do this for a living... The people that are doing it for a living and are creating content every single day, they have so much more competition than they've ever had in the past. Is that better or worse? Well, the way I look at it is, it just is. It's never been easy to be a creator. It's never been easy to be a musician, making a living, or an artist, or a band. There's always been a fair degree of difficulty. That hasn't changed. I don't see it changing in the future. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my music mixing primer and 101 mixing tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, I'm sure you've noticed that songs are getting simpler and simpler, and there's been a lot of studies into why this is happening. But first of all, let's look at some facts about the Billboard Top 10. 
Hit songs are becoming shorter and shorter. In 2000, a hit song was about 4 minutes and 22 seconds long. The average 2020 hit is only 3 minutes and 42 seconds. And actually, I thought it was shorter than that, to be honest with you. Hip-hop dominates the charts and accounts for about 60% of the top 10 positions. In 2000, the top 10 charts are dominated by pop, rock, and R&B. Now, this is beginning to change. We're seeing it in 2021. Everything's beginning to change. Nonetheless, if we're looking at just 2020 statistics, then this is the case. The average number of credited songwriters per song in the year 2000 was 2.4. Nowadays, it's about four per song. And in 2020, just about every song has some sort of collaboration or featured artist. In the year 2000, there were none. So things have changed a whole lot in the meantime. Why did this happen? Well, fans are inundated with so much new material, so simpler songs can be consumed a lot more quickly. One thing that we found is the more popular a genre becomes, the simpler its songs become as well. In a hot genre, songs become very generic and very formulaic. It turns out, though, that labels play into this. They're looking for low-risk songs. So they want everything to be simple. They want everything to be easy. They want everything to be easily digested and consumed. That's what we're getting. So all of this combination contributes to why songs are simpler these days. Do you like it or not? Well, there's a whole lot of people that do. My guest this week is keyboardist, conductor, composer, and arranger Bob Luna, who's worked with everyone from Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, Dionne Warwick, Alanis Morissette, Reba McIntyre, and many more. Bob has also created music for film, television, commercials, and video games, as well as composing the trailer music for dozens of films. He's also served as the music director for the Simply Shakespeare concert put on annually by Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks. Bob and I briefly played together in ex-Rolling Stone Mick Taylor's touring band back in the early 1990s. During the interview, we spoke about learning conducting, writing trailer music, working with Paul McCartney, studying with some classical masters, covering multiple keyboard parts on stage, and much more. I spoke with Bob via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Let's start at the beginning. Give me your background about getting into the business and, you know, from the beginning. When I was four years old is when I uh, started uh, uh, playing the piano. And I studied with my great aunt, who was a really great uh, uh, classical pianist. But then when the Beatles came out, I switched to guitar, as, you know, how many people have done that. And, uh, and played guitar for quite a number of years, uh, but then went back to the piano probably in my late teens and studied with a concert pianist from Greece and, uh, uh, you know, just uh, really uh, dove into the classical repertoire with her. And for a while, that was what I wanted to do. That was really what I, I wanted to, uh, you know, to be my, uh, my calling in life, I guess you could say, because I just love classical music. I love the classical piano repertoire and learned uh, so much from her. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, financial issues ended that dream, <laughs> and, uh, and it was too bad. I, I mean, although I still am uh, involved in it 
in, in a lot of different way, other ways. But at that time also, I think this was in my late 20s, I w- attended Dick Grove School of Music, and I uh, took courses in jazz piano, composing, arranging, and uh, you know, started uh, diving into that uh, side of things. And uh, really great uh, courses because Dick uh, taught them. And um, uh, we would have to uh, uh, write a different style every week and arrange it, write all, out all the charts for the orchestra or the big band, whatever the style was. And, and then we would have to conduct it on the podium. <laughs> you know, and half the, half the people were, were half asleep because they're, you know, back then copying was, copying all the charts was just, uh, it was so time consuming. Of course, there were ways that you could, uh, you know, uh, make it a little shorter, but, but for the most part, it was, you know, quite an ordeal. Anyway, it was great uh, world, uh, world learning experience, you know, for world situations that would uh, come about later on in my, uh, uh, my career. And uh, anyway, uh, so after that, I, when I graduated, I started uh, writing and producing for some, uh, of all things, salsa albums and uh, Latin jazz type of things. And I did that and uh, ended up conducting a few artists. From that, I, uh, I think that took me into the 90s. And I got a call to uh, audition for Dion Warwick, which I did and got the audition and um, started working with her. I was part of the core band. We used to work with orchestras and I was arranging uh, several, uh, several of her hits uh, that she had in the set, in the live set that we did. And so, you know, I'm conducting uh, some orchestras. Uh, I wasn't the MD for the gig. Joe Close uh, was the MD at the time. And, uh, but I got some very good experience doing that. And during that time, you know, I had to emulate an orchestra because, you know, all her stuff is all orchestrated. So when we didn't hire an orchestra, I was the orchestra on second keyboard. From, from there, I, I developed this process of doing that with the primitive technology that we had at the time. <laughs> Uh, this must have been around, I don't know, the early 90s. No, no, uh, probably the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, we bring uh, these um, hard drives. I think we had side quests and uh, Orb, I think they were called. Oh, uh, right. I remember uh, those, yeah. Remember those? Yeah. All that stuff. I, I carry a, a backup on backup, and a lot of times it was just a nightmare. Uh, because I wouldn't get, for instance, we had at the time 128 megabytes of sample RAM for a keyboard Yeah. at the time. So, you know, I would put that in the writer, but it's, uh, I didn't always get it. And so that was always a problem. So I would start uh, bringing uh, samplers on the road of my own, rack-mounted samplers. And I did that for a while. I remember going to, uh, to Europe and uh, just uh, dragging like two samplers with me. Anyway, that's... Uh, that was quite an experience. After I uh, left Dion, which I think was around 2003, I started getting calls for other situations, kind of one-up things uh, to play some shows. And I think, uh, let's see, I think I did Sister Sledge a couple of times. And I think that's when I did Mick Taylor with you. Mm. Around that time, I don't know, Bob, 
as you said, the 90s. Yeah, I think it was early 90s when we did Mick Taylor. But to be honest with you, <laughs> I can't tell you for sure. Okay, was that kind of a, a blur? Yeah, yeah, it, it, it was. Well, I only remember what happened yesterday, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's the way it is now. So anyway, uh, so after that, uh, I started getting all these one-off calls. And, uh, let's see, I, I think I, uh, I did, uh, oh, that's right. I, I uh, did some shows with a thing called Pacific Concert Group. I still actually do those shows where I'm the conductor for a lot of these R&B groups, a bunch of old R&B groups uh, and soul bands uh, like Friends of Distinction, Denise Williams, uh, Heatwave, uh, uh, the, uh, the Moments, the uh, Delphonics, uh, Taste of Honey, you know, all the old soul groups and everything. And as I said, I still do these, um, uh, you know, on a yearly basis, except for since uh, COVID has uh, interrupted that whole process uh, for the last uh, two years. But anyway, uh, doing more conducting. Uh, and from that, I, uh, I uh, got a call to do a benefit, uh, well, actually benefit shows uh, that were put on by Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson. Uh, they were called Simply Shakespeare. From that association, I worked with Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, I think, uh, who, uh, wow, uh, just a bunch of different people. Uh, Alanis Morissette. Uh, Smokey Robinson, Faith Hill, and Tim McGraw, and also Reba McIntyre mm, did some, wow. sh- some stuff with them. And uh, I was still doing the one-ops. I did uh, one, I think I subbed for some uh, people from uh, uh, Juice Newton. I had a friend who was in the group. I mean, you know that situation. They need a sub or whatever, and uh, they call you to do it. Yeah. They call you to do it. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, that uh, that still continues today. And uh, I think I also got called uh, later on uh, with Bobby Kimball of Toto and uh, Spencer Davis, who passed just, uh, I think, last year, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Spencer Davis and Chuck Negron of Three Dog Night and Mike Panera of uh, Blues Image and uh, Iron Butterfly. Oh, yeah. Guitar player. You know, Mike? I do, yeah. Yeah. And I work with him still. In fact, we're going to be doing a um, a show in Tulsa. I think, of all places. Uh, that's you know lately has been in the uh, news, the massacre. Uh, but anyway, I'm doing a show. I think that's uh, early July or so. And with uh, Mike, I've worked with uh, Denny Lane of Wings and Moody Blues fame. And anyway, you know, one thing leads to the other, and it just goes on and on. You know, I want to go back for a second to Dick Grove. Because everybody I've ever come in contact with who went to that school was really outstanding in the in terms of playing just, just musicality in general, yep. like the, just to step above everybody else. What what was it? Probably uh, Dick's fairy. Uh, uh, well, his is uh, how do I say this? Uh, the way he approached harmony. There is a certain method that it has that simplifies everything. It has to do with uh, things that are called chord families, and uh, that's just specifically uh, certain uh, aspects of the harmony. But it just simplifies everything, and it's applied in everything that you do, whether you're a player, whether you're an arranger, composer, 
you know, a- anything. Uh, just in music in general, uh, you can apply all these, this mindset, this, uh, uh, the way that you approach harmony, and uh, it just simplifies everything. And so there's a, a bit of a, how would I say, kindred, kindredship with uh, people from Grove that when, you know, when you know someone else is from Grove, you know that, you know, yeah. they're able to do certain things that a lot of other people don't, yeah. aren't, aren't able to do. And so it's a, it's a very thorough music, developed music, music knowledge. It's, it's just very thorough in his approach. And uh, When you were doing private studies, I don't think many people have ever experienced that. So how did that take your playing to another level? Was it just because of intense practice or was there something that you were getting from the, from the teacher that was different, special? Well, first, first of all, uh, Evie Martin was my coach uh, in classical uh, repertoire, classical, classical piano repertoire. She was a concert pianist herself. And so I got all that knowledge from her experience and, and she was concertizing at the time you know she was doing a lot of stuff and brought uh, all her experiences to the coaching sessions that we had and uh you know at that time i think i was doing uh, a lot of piano concertos uh double uh piano things so she would play the orchestra part and i would play the soloist part and you know she could just give me all kinds of tips and tricks, if you want to call them that, and just her world experience. And, of course, the repertoire, you know, is just head over heels over a lot of other repertoire, you know, um, outside of the classical world. Uh, although jazz, I mean, there's some very uh, demanding things in jazz. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, that just stuck with me. And, you know, I still uh, uh, am always... Uh, practicing my uh, classical repertoire all the time. The technique that it built was uh, just over anything else, I, I believe. Mm. And it, it just enables me to do a lot of things that I think a lot of other people can do in regard to the independence and, and having been able to do co- cover a lot of uh, keyboard chairs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When you were playing guitar... It's very easy to to just stay with that and do that, especially growing up in the era that we did. So what brought you back to playing piano? Well, I, you know, I was playing the guitar because of the Beatles, and then I started playing all the other stuff, Cream and uh, Jim Hendrix and all that stuff. And I actually became pretty good. But quite frankly, you know, I had, uh, my brother had a band. They were older than me. And they had... uh, you know, they had uh, guitar players, you know, how that, how that is. And, and uh, although, you know, they admired the way I, I played and I was younger than them, there was no need for me to be in the group. And there were other groups um, that I did play guitar in, but they said, well, you know, if you go back to playing the organ, we need an organ player. You know, and back then we had Vox uh, organs and Farfisa organs and playing stuff like Iron Butterfly and, yeah. you know, all that stuff you know, 96 tiers. Uh, they said, if you, you know, get back to playing the organ, then, uh, you know, we can let you in the band. <laughs> so I went back. I went back and, uh, you know, started playing organ with, with the bands. And from that went on to other bands where I would play organ. I think the first 
so-called main band was was you remember a band called Cannibal and the Headhunters? Yeah, oh sure, yeah. You know, a land of a thousand dances yeah. was their hit. Uh, yeah, I think that was one of the first bands that I played organ uh, specifically, uh, not piano, just organ. I think at that time I had a Hammond organ. Maybe it was a C three. Huh. Okay, yeah. <laughs> You know, and those things were hit, were heavy to, to move around back then. Uh, let me just tell you a quick story. Uh, because of that, the C3 or the CV, C5, I think it was, we'd have to carry that thing. We were carrying that thing in a in a truck, one of those uh, trucks with the, um, you know, the tailgate would go down. You have to lift it up high. You weren't putting it in vans. We didn't have vans at the time. And one time it fell on my fingers. And my parents got so uh, worried that I was going to have a problem because they thought I would, you know, have a, uh, some some sort of a music career. That they went out uh, and they bought me a Hammond B3 because I had told them for the longest time they're much lighter, they're got a better sound, and of course they're more expensive. But that was the one to have. And so they went out and they bought that for me right after that incident. Well, I owned a B3 and two Leslie's myself. Oh, two and, Leslie's. And I went through kind of the same thing where I was a guitar player and then to get in a band I wanted to be in, I kind of went back to playing organ. Everybody has Hammond stories, of course, you know, taking it upstairs and, yep. you know, whatever. But the one I remember was we were playing in a brand new mafia bar in Bayonne, New Jersey, oh. or Secaucus, New Jersey. You know, in, in their infinite wisdom, they put the stage behind the bar, but no way to get to it. So we had to lift the Hammond up over the bar, and the only way we could do that is oh. to have it straddle on this brand new gorgeous bar. And we were scared to death that we were going to scratch it and then wind up in the East River somewhere. <laughs> it was a mafia bar, it, you it, said. It was a mafia bar, yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> it wasn't advertised as such, but you just knew from the clientele that that that's what it was so yeah we didn't scratch it thankfully but it, you know everybody really put their extra last bit of effort into it to, so we didn't touch this <laughs> this top so yeah i <laughs> believe me i i understand those stories completely i've i've been oh. there let's talk about conducting and, and orchestrating because there's not many people that do that as a matter of fact i know arrangers i know orchestrators that don't want to conduct at all they're kind of afraid. If you're talking about, say, uh, arrangers or, or composers that are doing, for instance, like film film scores, uh, yeah, I mean, I understand why they're, uh, I mean, they can get a lot more done in the uh, control room anyway and have someone who is probably used to conducting more on a daily uh, basis. Uh, uh, who was it uh, that was doing a lot of the conducting for uh, was it Pete Anthony? I think who was doing a lot of conducting for a lot of for the uh, film com, uh, film composers like I think Al, Alan Silvestri and maybe James Newton Howard and you know some of the A list uh, composers. Uh, this guy was always doing it. I remember meeting him through the Musicians Union when, it, when uh, the union was on uh, Vine Street in Hollywood. And uh, yeah, uh, but he used to do a lot of, of that stuff. But I think that's the, probably the reason why, because uh, there's, you know, they're, they're used to it. They, they, they know how to uh, uh, talk to an orchestra and, 
and, and they can uh, just conduct business, I think, probably more efficiently in the control room. Mm. Uh, you do have people, I mean, like John Williams, who always conducts his stuff. But, you know, John Williams is uh, class all his own and, and doesn't have to worry about the time clock so much, uh, relaying things back and forth from the orchestra to the conductor or to the producer or director who's in the, uh, in the control group. Now, I know you said that one of the things that Grove was, you had to, to conduct all of the things that you wrote, which I think is brilliant. What was the first time when you got in front of an orchestra, you got in front of, of something that you're getting paid for? Uh, well, you know, we, um, Throughout the uh, from from the Dick Grove uh, uh, class uh, uh, course, I went on to other things like UCLA, uh, and and I conducted more film scoring things and stuff like that uh, of my own scores, and so I, I you know got kind of used to it. So when I did uh, conduct, I think I conducted for some uh, commercials. There was a Chinese firm. Uh, this is around the same time I was producing and arranging for salsa groups uh, for a, a, it was like a salsa record company. Uh, God, I can't remember the guy who owned it and hired me to do it. But around that same time, I uh, was getting paid to conduct. At that time, it was just ensembles. And so I was doing that in the, in the recording studio. When I first started doing things for, say, like uh, some of those R&B and uh, soul bands for the Pacific Concert Groups, I, I had something like eight, eight acts on the shows that I'd have to conduct. And as I say, I still do this now. But, uh, you know, th these were supposed to be sound checks <laughs> that turn into... Uh, uh, rehearsals, and so you, you end up re, uh, conducting the whole show, or at least most of it. But it was because a lot of these acts, they hadn't gotten together for, you know, for a long time, and so it was like their rehearsal. And so you ended up doing their show of, you know, four or five songs. I tried to condense it any way I could, but, uh, you know, that was uh, kind of what it was, and uh, I was getting paid for it, but... Uh, Still, that was, uh, by that time, uh, you know, I, I really didn't have uh, a concern, I would say, because I knew what to do and had done it for a while. Wow. How about working with Paul McCartney? Now, Paul was an interesting cat. You know, we played all the Beatles tunes, which was a, just a fantastic uh, experience for me, you know, being a, you know, the Beatles fan that I am, and... Uh, learning all that stuff back in the day, uh, you know, uh, when I played guitar. But at that time, uh, when I played with Paul, it was, I played uh, keyboards. And now I wasn't, you know, obviously I wasn't part of the core band of Paul's because that's, uh, 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 what's his name? Wick, Wick Wickens. Yeah. Who does that, does that get, he, he's uh, his conductor. He was. And also the other guys, Rusty and uh, 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 I can't think of um, the other guitar player's name. In fact, I was I, I ran into him at a at a benefit, but I I, I uh, 
you know, talked with, uh, with, with, with that guy, a uh, person I can't remember his name, about, you know, playing with Paul on a regular basis. And because I uh, told him about my experience of playing with Paul. And, uh, you know, Paul is, is uh, he, he's very, uh, what I say, uh, down to earth in a lot of ways. But then in other ways, you know, he'll have, a, a, you know, that uh, kind of, uh, I hate to, to use the word diva, but, uh, you know, kind of that uh, uh, expectation, I guess you would say, that things need to be uh, done uh, in a certain way. And I can dig that, you know, that's uh, what it, we're all there to make uh, the show the best that it possibly can be. So uh, that's, that's fine. And, and uh, so were you there as a second keyboard player then? No. No, I didn't work with Wix. I didn't work with Wix. This was a, a, a whole a whole different uh, set of people. Oh, I see. Okay. Because, uh, you know, Paul, like all other artists, they do a lot of different things. And, and they'll, they'll go on and do certain concerts where they don't use their core band. Yeah. I remember doing Dionne Warwick. And there were times when she would do shows with Burke Backrack. And I wasn't part of that. Yeah. Uh, because they would have their own, either there's uh, people from her band and people from her Backrack's band that would get, that would play the, the shows the, together. And I wasn't part of that. And so I'm sure that's the way it is with a lot of other situations. Um, you know, um, i trying to think of other people. Uh, probably same with Alanis Morissette and uh, Faith Hill and... Uh, you know, they, they do a lot of shows and they're not always going to have uh, their core band. Yeah. Yeah. Was it just a few songs or was it like a whole set? No, it was, it was a whole sh uh, uh, shows. Oh, there no were, kidding. Yeah, there were, there were, yeah. And that was also with uh, uh, Paul Simon. You know, uh, let me just tell you a very quick story with Paul Simon. You know, before we did the show with him, uh, there was always that uh, talk about what well, he's really down on drummers since he had Steve Gadd. Yeah. as his drummer uh but we uh we used uh fritz levack i don't know fritz he's uh uh jackson brown's uh oh, okay right jackson brown's uh drummer anyway paul was just great paul simon i had such a ple pleasure working with him and you know after hearing all these stories and you know it's going to be a nightmare and this and that and he was just a pleasure to work with i know phil ramon told me he used to be scared to death of him Phil was his engineer before he became a producer. He he was he was engineer at A and R, and he did all of Paul's records. And Paul apparently was very demanding, so it was basically one of those things where it's like, oh God, here comes Paul Simon. Uh oh. You know? <laughs> well, maybe you know I don't know what year did you uh, work with him? Ten years ago or so. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's see. I think I worked with Paul Simon. Uh, that must have been, I think, the year after I worked with Paul McCartney, because Paul McCartney, I worked with him in 2013. I think Paul Simon was uh, 2014. You know, tell me about Gig Performer. You know, I had worked with that, um, I'm not going to say, you know, um, I don't want to say bad things about it, but uh, a main stage, I think it's called, with Logic. I use Logic. So main stage was one of the first the software uh, that was supposed to make your life easier. Uh, as far as a, 
a keyboardist who had to play multiple parts uh, for different situations. And, and I had a bad experience. I was working with uh, Denise Williams and I did a, a rehearsal and I was using main stage and things just locked up on me. Mm. And, you know, I mean, Denise is a, a very nice person. I like her very much. And I, you know, occasionally work with her at times, but she wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> and, you know, I had to scramble with that. And I said, uh, after that, I would never use main stage again. And I was searching for the longest time. Finally, I came across this uh, software called Geek Performer uh, by Deskew, uh, uh, Deskew oh my God. Technologies. Deskew Technologies is the parent company. And I started working with it and I could see that I could con- I could actually connect anything with anything. You know, there's always compatibility issues with software. Yeah. And b- believe me, I mean, I know from back in the uh, uh, the 90s with different uh, disk drives and uh, different samplers and, and software that wasn't going to work with that. And then I started using laptops for my uh, live rigs. And, you know, a lot of things were not um, compatible. So I found the Geek Performer, and then I uh, met the... the, uh, the um, People who uh, developed it at NAM, uh, at the NAM booth, and at the time, I think I uh, was playing with Bobby Kimball. I did the NAM show, uh, the NAM. Uh, it's called Legends of NAM. I don't know if you ever. Yeah. Oh yeah. You go, you, you go to the NAM show, don't you? Yeah. Anyway, yeah, I, I do this thing called Legends of NAM, and, and there's all kinds of acts, and it was Bobby Kimball, and they came to the show, and from there, and they saw what I was doing with it, and uh, so they. You know, I said, well, you know, why don't you do, uh, sp- uh, um, give you a sponsorship with this, so pretty much. And so I've learned a lot about it, uh, have used that, and it's my the centerpiece of my live situation. Uh, it just can't, let's see, Gig Performer 4 just came out, I think. Or wait a minute, today's June the 1st? No, June the 3rd, sorry. June the 1st, it came out, the new Gig Performer 4. That I just, they just sent it to me, and I was just working on it. It's got a bunch of new features, but it enables me to do what I need to do. Being a uh, a keyboardist that has to, play, you know, I gotta wear a lot of different hats. Besides being the keyboardist, if I don't have a second keyboard player, I gotta cover all the parts, and then I gotta conduct the orchestra or conduct the ensemble, whatever the uh, group situation is, you know. And and so I can't have things uh, locking up on me. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. And it's working great for me um i'm very happy with it very cool yeah you should check it out i mean i know you're not a keyboardist or anything but you know because i know you're into technology and you know a lot about about it uh it's really helped me out a lot yeah i definitely will i'm curious so you've done films and commercials and television and i saw something on your website that said something about more trailers than you can mention or something like that. And I'm just curious about your approach to doing trailer music as opposed to everything else. Well, you know, it's changed a lot. I was doing, I think, that back in the, I don't know, it must have been either the early 2000s or maybe even late 90s. I don't know. 
but it's a whole different thing now. I mean, it, the, the technology has, has improved so much and there's uh, all kinds of orchestral libraries and, uh, you know, you don't have to deal so much with an orchestra unless you've got the budget. For trailers, though, I don't think they, you know, for the most part, they even use orchestras. Uh, it's mostly in the box. And, and uh, uh, yeah, I don't do that, uh, you know, really uh, anymore. But as I said, it has changed. And a lot of people that they're actually, they, they made a whole institution out of it, I think, um, since when I was doing it, where it's like this, um, I don't want to say uh, mystery, well, to, to some people it is, of how to to write music for that. It's become very bombastic and kind of a, a, a certain way that you write music. It, it involves, uh, you know, a lot of guitars and a lot of uh, big percussion and all that stuff. And so and most of the, you know, these guys uh, uh, know these libraries very well. You know, they, they use it all the time. They know these things. And, uh, and I think the, the newest ones, uh, the newest people in it, are like graduates from these um, schools, these schools that are, I don't know, uh, people like, um, um, it was a Berkeley. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they have programs that now just deal with stuff like that. And, and they go and, and they go from, uh, uh, from school to uh, trailer houses. You know, people that are doing that stuff a lot more now. Yeah. I know some people that do that for trailer houses. And uh, one of the things that, I think there's a burnout factor involved where you can't do it for a long time. I'm not sure why. I mean, maybe you can tell me. I, I suppose that there are deadlines involved in the whole thing that make it difficult. Yeah, absolutely. There's always deadlines. But as I said, uh, uh, back then when I was doing them, it, it wasn't as it is now uh, in that, well, there is the deadline, but, but the houses got so much work, so many deadlines. It's, it's, it's almost like uh, uh, well, Hans Zimmer and his, uh, uh, I can't think of his, uh, his, um, his camp. I mean, he's got all these composers working for him. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I think in, in a lot of these trailer houses these days, they've got, you know, people that have just come from the, uh, um, the school. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. Where they train for stuff like that. And they're doing that. Uh, so, unfortunately, I can't really uh, uh, give you an insight in the way it's run now. Yeah, yeah. Last question, Bob. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you've learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Well, as always, meet your deadlines. <laughs> you got you to meet your deadlines. Yeah. Um, you know, it's all about that. Do the best you can at everything that you venture into. Uh, learn as much as you can. That's why I'm, I'm diving into all your stuff, uh, the, the mixing uh, process. Uh, that has always been a mystery to me, although I've done it throughout all these you know decades, but really didn't uh, study it the way I'm doing it now. Uh, you know, learning from you. Uh, in fact, I... I uh, I talk with Ira Ingber, who I know you know, and yeah. I know that you interviewed. Yeah. Because we, we did talk about that before uh, 
you know, before doing this uh, interview with you. And, uh, you know, he's helped me also. He's, uh, I think he does a lot of mixing for a lot of different situations. And, uh, um, you know, learn as much as you can. I think knowledge is gold. You know, knowledge is power. Knowledge, knowing as much as you can, whatever field that you've chosen to do is, I think, priceless. That's what you got to do. Uh, because uh, everyone else, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they're doing the same, maybe they're not. But you always want to know that you have done everything that you have that you can to prepare yourself for whatever the job situation is. For me, whatever it is, if it's a uh, uh, working with a, a new artist, I research and as much as I possibly can about them, learn everything I can about them, learn you know, even things about their personality that can be applied to, to artists can be applied to, I don't know. Um, when you pitch stuff to music supervisors and, you know, know where that, what they're doing, what, uh, the, the, um, uh, projects they're working on, you know, uh, that, um, um, what else can I tell you? Uh, just know as much as you, as you can uh, learn as much as you can. You can find out more about Bob at BobLunaMusic.net. That's BobLunaMusic, B-O-B-L-U-N-A Music, all one word, dot net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOsinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOinnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Hey.